How many of you remember exactly what you were doing 23 years ago today? 23 years ago today, I could tell you exactly what I was doing. Not because I'm some kind of savant that remembers dates, you know, or, or not because I'm even that smart. I'll tell you why I can remember what I was doing 23 years ago today, because it was the first public worship service we had for Gateway Community Church 23 years ago to this day. Uh, yeah, pretty cool, right? Kind of a neat thing. And the model that, that we were encouraged to follow back then was to have what they called preview services. So we'd had a few public worship services, and then we had our grand opening at the end of March. But our first public worship service was on February 4, 2001, at the Whistle Stop School. It's at the corner of Renner and Murphy Road. And uh, we met there for a few years. And uh, I could tell you all kinds of incredible stories of things that happened leading up to that day, and even things that happened on the back end in the early years of our church. But I'm more interested, the reason I bring that up is to tell you why we started our church 23 years ago in the first place. And as I was reading through our passage today, which will be in Mark chapter 2 in just a little bit, I was reminded through this, this epic encounter of Jesus, the power of Jesus to transform lives and what he's capable of doing, I was reminded why we started Gateway in the first place. And that's because we believe, because I believe wholeheartedly in the power of Jesus to change people's lives. See, that, I believe that, number one, because that's what he did for me. Because he took me, somebody uh, who was raised by great parents uh, in a great neighborhood and had a great childhood, great upbringing. But in spite of all of that, there was something that I knew was missing in my life. I just had this sense, there has to be more to life than this. And maybe some of you have been there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I came to know Christ in a personal way, and when I did, that changed everything. And it gave me purpose in my life. But not only did it change my life, it also changed my eternity. Because here's what I came to understand, and that is that I'm a sinful person. By, by that, I just simply mean sin is anything that we say, do, or think that falls short of God's standard, or for that matter, even our own. We don't even live up to our own standards, but we certainly don't live up to God's standards, and that's sin. And because of our sin, because we fall short, we are separated from God in this life, and we will remain separated from God for eternity if something doesn't happen to change that. What changed that in my life, and I know what's changed that in many of your lives has been Christ. So Jesus changes people in their life now. He changes people in their eternity. And once that happened in my life, I had this passion to share that with as many people as I possibly could. I wanted to tell other people the good news. And if you haven't yet encountered Christ in a personal way like that, my prayer leading into today and our time of worship today would be, that your heart would be drawn to him, that you would understand the love that he has for you and the opportunity to know him personally, to have your life changed now, but even more importantly, to have your eternity changed so that you know that you'll be with him forever. If you haven't come to a point of trusting him yet, I pray that you do today. And if you have, my prayer is that you will have a passion to share that with people around you, that you will join us in sharing that with our community because that's why we started this church. Because we believe in the power of Jesus to change lives, and we want to tell people about it. There's a story in Mark chapter 2 that I want us to read today. It's the reason it made me think about uh, how interesting it was that it fell on the 23rd anniversary of our church. Because I want to be more like 
the four men in this story that we're about to read. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Verse 1 says, uh, begins this chapter by saying, then when Jesus returned to Capernaum. Capernaum was a trading village of about 1,500 people located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus settled there after he was driven out of Nazareth. If you go back into chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus appeared at and spoke at a synagogue in Capernaum. And the people are amazed because Jesus is teaching with authority. But then it also says that there was a man there who had an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, and he cried out to Jesus while Jesus is teaching. Just imagine this. Church service, the preacher's preaching, and some guy stands up and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, Jesus rebukes the evil spirit. He tells him to come out of the man. He comes out with a shriek. And the people are amazed, as you might imagine, at what they see. Jesus continues performing miracles there in Capernaum. Then he goes on to other areas, and he continues to preach, and he continues to perform miracles. And word about Jesus is spreading. And his fame is spreading. So when Jesus comes back to Capernaum, it's a big deal, right? There's, there's quite a stir. People have been anticipating his return. So much so that when he's in a home, it says that people just gathered to him. They all crowded into this home. They didn't want to wait until the next Sabbath when he would be speaking in the synagogue. They wanted to come to Jesus immediately. And he's in a home speaking and teaching the people. Now, we don't know much uh, about this home. We don't know who it belonged to. I've heard some commentators say that some think it might have been the home of Simon Peter. Some say it might have been the home that Jesus used as a home base while he was in Capernaum. We don't know who the home belonged to, but what we do know is that it says in verse 2, there were so many gathered there that there was no more room, not even at the door. So they are crammed in. First thing that I can think of when I read this is the fire marshal there in Capernaum must not have been too happy, right? They were not following the fire code, but they didn't care. Oh, they, they were 
They were obsessed with hearing Jesus, with seeing him to see what he would do next. They're hanging on every word. And then verse 3 introduces us to a man who's paralyzed, who's being carried by four friends. Again, we don't know anything about these four friends. Perhaps one of them was healed by Jesus when Jesus was in Capernaum last. Or perhaps they saw Jesus perform miracles, but something happened so that these four men knew who Jesus was, and they wanted to get their friend to Jesus. The problem, according to verse 4, was that no one could get near him because of the crowd. So what do they do? Do they give up? Do they say, we tried, maybe we'll come back another time? They don't give up. In fact, they, they do something drastic that requires some explanation because it says they tore a hole through the roof. And that day, houses were built with flat roofs. They were, there were beams on top of the home, and it was overlaid with mud plaster. So it, it was sturdy. I mean, people would, would go up on their roofs. A lot of times during the summer, families would sleep up on top of their homes. So it was sturdy enough to hold people, but at the same time, you could dig through it, but this is no small task. So they begin to dig through the roof. They create a hole in the roof. Now try to put yourself in the shoes of those inside the home. Jesus is teaching. People are everywhere. And then suddenly bits of dirt start to fall on his head. I, I just have to tell you, I, I've been interrupted while speaking by a lot of different things. Had cell phones go off. I've had uh, you know babies making noise. I've had people sneeze in ways that scare everybody. I mean, there, there are a lot of different things. By the way, if your cell phone has ever gone off in church, let me just tell you: don't feel so bad about that because I've been interrupted by my own cell phone while I was speaking before. In fact, one of the times, not too awful long ago, I was performing a funeral. Yes, oh no, is right. And I mean, I'm laying out the gospel and just talking about the hope that we have and the eternal life that we can have in Christ, and I'm just bringing it home when all of a sudden my phone goes off at full volume. And you know how you try to squeeze the little volume button to get it? It wasn't working. And I'm doing this. It's in my pocket. I realize it. I don't know why I left it in my pocket. I'm trying to turn it off. It won't go off. I look over, and I see Sean, the person she's sitting next to, and I thought, I cannot look back there again because I just, I'm going to lose it. And it, so don't feel so bad. I've interrupted myself with my cell phone going off. But I must say I have never been interrupted by having dirt fall on my head. Never been interrupted by a caving ceiling that was starting to collapse on top of me. And that's what Jesus encounters here. And I just, you know, I, golly, to think about all the different things that these four men had to go through. Their commitment to bring their friend to Jesus was remarkable. I mean, even to get up on the roof to begin with, the way homes were structured, they had a ladder on the outside of the home. So you could climb up the ladder to get on top of the roof. How are you going to climb up a ladder? How are you going to get a, a paralyzed man up on top of the roof? We don't know exactly how they did it, but it, it couldn't have been easy. And then once you get him up on top of the roof, now you have to tear through the roof and get a hole large enough to lower a grown man down to the ground. And you have to figure out how are you going to do that? Ropes or whatever it was to, to lower him down to the ground. I mean, this is a major, major project. Wasn't easy, but they refused to give up. And maybe that's why Jesus says what he does in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw 
their faith. You might want to circle that word, there. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith is he referencing here? It's plural. He saw their faith. This might include the faith of the man who was about to be healed, or it might not. We don't know for sure. But we know that it definitely included the faith of the four men who brought him to Jesus because it had to be some of them, at least, for him to use the plural and say, when he saw their faith. These are men who had great faith that, that Christ could do something that was desperately needed for their friend. Their willingness to bring him to Jesus and their commitment not to stop until they got him to Jesus changes everything for this man. I mean, that morning he woke up unable to move, unable to walk. Most likely without much hope in his life that anything would ever change or ever get better. And he goes to bed that night completely healed, able to walk, having hope, and more important than anything, having his sins forgiven. All of that happens because these four men were intent on getting their friend to Jesus. Now again, let's imagine the scene. Jesus is teaching. There's a hole that begins to appear in the roof above them. They've taken a massive risk by doing this because they didn't ask for permission. They're damaging someone's home. How is Jesus going to respond? What's he going to do when he sees them digging a hole and beginning to lower someone through the hole? I mean, I wonder what's going through the mind of the paralyzed man at this point. Is he going to rebuke me? Is he going to reject me? Is he going to tell me to get out of here? What is he going to say? Jesus looks at him and look at the very first words that come out of his mouth. He looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I can assure you of all the things this man expected Jesus to say, that was not one of them. Son, your sins are are forgiven. He doesn't address his physical need yet. I mean, why in the world would Jesus lead with that? I mean, we have examples in other places in Scripture. John chapter 5, for example, he healed a paralyzed man there, and it wasn't until later that he saw him at the temple and he said, you know, unless you repent, something worse may happen. He first heals him, then he addresses his spiritual need. But in this case, he goes the other way around. In this case, he addresses the spiritual need first before he heals him. Maybe it's because he knew something about the heart of this man and he knew that his greatest need, we know he knew this, whether the man realized it or not, his greatest need was for forgiveness. That's the same for every one of us. Our greatest need, in addition to any physical need or anything else that we may have in our life, our greatest need is for forgiveness. Our greatest need is to be made right with God. And so the very first thing that Jesus does is he addresses his greatest need. But I, I think he did that also because he wanted to make a point. Because we're told that there were scribes who were present, part of the religious elite at this time. And he knew what they were thinking. He, he, I think he's kind of stirring things up just a little bit here, raising a question because he says your sins are forgiven. And then right after that, it says, verse 6, that they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Jesus, verse 8, immediately perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned him, and so he addresses their question. He knew what they were thinking, 
And he said, no one can forgive sins. This is blasphemy, right? Who can forgive sins? But God alone. And then he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. That verse right there is the point of this whole story. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Yes, Jesus was meeting a physical need and he was changing this man's life. But more than anything, what he was doing was he was proving who he really is. You see, the scribes and and their way of thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone, they were exactly right. And to assume that it's blasphemy for a human being to claim to forgive sins is exactly right. Unless that human being is also God in human flesh, which Jesus was. It is blasphemy to say your sins are forgiven unless you are God. Everything about Jesus' life points to the fact that he is God in human flesh. His miracles do. The authority with which he teaches does. The way he loves people does. Everything about the life of Jesus points to to who he is. That's why he was able to say what he said here. I want you to think about this. Think, think about all the people who have healed and performed miracles in the power of God before. We have the prophets from the Old Testament that performed many, many miracles. There were probably people in Jesus' day that claimed to perform miracles. Performing miracles was not completely unheard of It was 100% unheard of for someone to perform miracles and then say, and your sins are forgiven. Nobody did that because nobody could do that. Old Testament prophets, I mean, they performed miracles in the power of God, but they had no authority to proclaim forgiveness of sin to anybody in their own power. But Jesus did. He's showing everyone who he really was. He offers forgiveness. I said a moment ago that Jesus is always performing, you know, performing miracles, loving people, and teaching with authority. All of those things point to who he really is. But you know, there was one final proof that should remove any doubt, and that is that after Jesus was put to death, he rose from the dead in the power of God. There, there is no other explanation for that. I mean, you talk about the final convincing piece to the puzzle that Jesus really is who he claims to be. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus really was who he said he was. And this is another example of something that he does to show who he really is. I said, if you haven't yet come, to a point of receiving him as he really is. My prayer is that today that will happen. But I also want to spend a few minutes talking to those of us that do know Christ, that have come to a point of trusting him, um, because there's so much we can learn from these four friends. And I'm just going to hit on these things really quickly. We've kind of been talking about them a little bit so far. But here's three takeaways for those of us that know Christ when it comes to Uh, what we should be doing to share the good news with those around us. The first one, I just want you to notice that they cared deeply about their paralyzed friend. They cared enough to bring him to Jesus and not to get sidetracked or not to give up in spite of the obstacles that were in front of them. 
These four men might not have known their friend's deepest spiritual need, but they knew Jesus could heal him. They knew if they could get him to Jesus that Jesus could change him. And my question I have to ask myself, and I, I encourage you to ask yourself the same question, do I really care about those who don't know Christ? And if I do, that will motivate me to, to share the good news with them. I understand that this is harder for some than it is for others, that some have a more natural bent toward that. I'm not telling you you have to go knock on a stranger's door. But I'm saying, what, what are you doing to build relationships with people and just praying for them and asking God to give you the opportunity to point them to Christ? There's a tool that you found in your seat when you came in today. Uh, it's, it's called an impact card. I want to encourage you to take that with you. And one great way to know, do I care about people that don't know Christ, is just to ask a simple question. Can you tell me three people in your life that don't know Christ that, that you are investing in relationally? And that's what this card is for, is to list the names of three different people that maybe don't know Christ or maybe have, have fallen away from a close relationship with Christ. Three people that you are seeking to have a spiritual impact on their life. And I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to write their names down. If you know who they are right now, you can write them down while we're talking. I mean, just one, two, three, write them down there. And I want you to take this card with you, put it up on your mirror or somewhere, but, and then commit to three things. One is to pray for them daily by name. Two, Seek an opportunity to share a word of witness with them, meaning that you have share something about your testimony or something about God with them verbally. And then three is invite them to come to church with them. Invite them to Gateway. Three simple things that I want to encourage you to do that will help us to, to show that we really do care for people around us because sometimes we're just not sure where to start. We'll start there. Pray for them. Ask God for an opportunity to share a word of witness. Invite them to church. Second thing I see about these three men, four men rather, is that they had faith in Christ. And we pointed this out a moment ago when Jesus said when he saw their faith. But I mean, man, what incredible faith to, to be willing to do what they were doing here. It demonstrates that they really believed in Jesus. And here's my thinking on that is if I have that level of faith in Christ, if I really believe that he can change someone's life, then I'm going to do whatever's necessary to get people to him. And if I claim to have faith in Christ, then his priorities are going to become my priorities. And I know that his priority is to have a relationship with people that are far from God. That's what he wants. If what he wants is not what I want, there's a disconnect there somewhere. And I need to ask myself why and what needs to happen in order to, to get rid of that disconnect. But uh, faith, having a personal deep faith in Christ will just lead us to wanting to share that with people around us. And then the third thing that I notice here is that they refuse to be deterred. When we talked about all the obstacles that they had to overcome, they couldn't get him to Jesus because the crowds, there's certainly no way carrying someone on a mat that they can wiggle through the people in a crowd. So they go up on a roof and they dig a hole in someone else's home. They destroy someone else's property in order to get people to Jesus. My point is that they were willing to do whatever was necessary. They didn't, they're not bringing him to Jesus against his will. You know, I'm not suggesting that you try to force something on someone or that you drag someone against their will to make them come to church with you or, or listen to you. That's not the point. But the point is that we do whatever is necessary to get people to Christ. And then we remember it's not our job to save anyone. 
Can I just remind you of that today? I know you know that already. Our job is to, to try to get them to Christ. It's to try to share the story of what Jesus can do for them. But he's the one that changes hearts. So we do everything in our power. The problem is, if I'm being honest, sometimes I give up too easily. Sometimes I don't have that level of tenacity and, and commitment to do what these four men did. They refused to be deterred in bringing their friend to Jesus. So as we go through and read this story today, my hope is that it comes to life in a fresh way. That we see these men that brought people to, brought their friend to Jesus and we're motivated by the same thing. My prayer is that for those of us that don't yet have a relationship with Christ or we're still trying to figure out who he is, that, that we will come to the conclusion that for someone to do these things, to say and do these things, and then to prove that he really had the authority to forgive sins by having the man rise and walk again, all of that points to who Jesus really is. As we prepare to close, I want to show you a dramatization of this story um, that really helped it come to life for me in a fresh way. It's a clip from the series called The Chosen. I know some of you are familiar with that. I, I do want to say this for those of our friends that are watching online uh, later on. I realize that we're not able to show this online. Uh, it's gonna, the screen's going to go dark here for just a few minutes. If you go to our bulletin, uh, which is on our website, there, there's a link directly inside the electronic bulletin that you can watch it on your own or you can go to YouTube and, and find it yourself. Um, so just know if you're watching online, you're, you're not going to be able to see it here for the next few minutes. Just hang with us. But for the rest of us, I want us to take a look at just the, the power of this scene. And in particular, pay attention to the compassion in the eyes of Jesus and the face of the man whose life has changed when he comes to know Christ in a personal way. Let's take a look. I love that reminder that Jesus is... Um, he changed lives of real people. And today I just want to remind you that, that he wants to do the same for you. That Christ wants to step in your life. Your, your issue may not be a physical one. Maybe it is. But I do know this, that we all need the forgiveness that Christ offers. And we all need to share the good news with those around us. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And we're going to wrap up with that today. But it may be that God is stirring something in your heart. And if that's the case, we, we want to hear about it. We want to pray with you. We want to be able to come alongside you. So I'm going to encourage you on your way out after we dismiss here in just a moment that you come by, share what God is doing, and let's pray together over that. Let's pray together now. Lord, I thank you so much just for, for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that, that you are one who has no limits. You do miracles. You change hearts. You forgive sins, most importantly. Lord Jesus, thank you for that. Would you stir in our hearts a desire to share that good news with people around us? And Lord, shake us out of being comfortable. Lord, give us boldness to take the good news to this community. In the power of Jesus and in his name we pray, amen.